Nicole Awesome Sauce. Nicole, how you doing? Oh, it's a great day. I just finished roasting for the day right before this. So yeah, we're here together. We're going to do Spirko and Sauce, discuss all the things, episode <laughs> all of them. 3294 of the Survival Podcast, and this is the last live stream of the Survival Podcast for two weeks. For two weeks. <laughs> Not ever, for two weeks. And so the way this show came about, I got on Noster and said, hey, I have no plan for Thursday because this has been a crazy two weeks as I get ready to go out of town for a couple weeks. And uh, what should I do? And then all the things came. And Nicole said, why not a live stream with Nicole Sauce? And I said, OK, why don't we put the, all the things and the Nicole Sauce in the same room and see what happens? So we're going to see if you can defeat all the things today, Nicole. Uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> Look at a gang up on you. It's like 20 to 1. <laughs> anyway, uh, before we dig into all the things, I do want to let you guys hear from our sponsor of the day today, which is John Bush and the Exit and Build Land Summit 3. This is going to be a great lineup of speakers. And guess who's going to be there? Me. I'll be there. Nicole Awesome Sauce is going to be there. And a bunch of other folks. Nicole, why should they come on down to the Exit and Build Land Summit and hang out with you and me? As though that weren't not enough of a reason. Well, I mean, hanging out with us is definitely a, the best reason to come, of course. But I will say that we keep talking about economic instability and taking ownership for your life and building something no matter what happens. John Bush looked at the problem. And a lot of times when we talk about it, we overcomplicate things. Nope. He's like, here's what you need to do. You need to get out of the city and build something on the land, find connections, become the parallel society. Super simple. And then he came up with a great title, exit and build. So he's connecting people who are already out on the land with people who are looking to escape the 15-minute city approach or the smart city approach and start becoming more resilient, start taking ownership for their futures. And the people you meet there are freaking fantastic. So that's like the number one reason to go. Yeah, yeah. And I've been saying that, like, don't just think about meeting the speakers and all, like, talk to the people that sit yeah. at your table. And Nicole and I will probably make you do that during our talk just because we totally that's, will. What we, that's what we do. Like, But uh, here's one of the speakers I'm excited to meet. This dude's a hero of mine. Michael Reynolds is literally the dude that created the Earthship, you know, and, and went out with such fervor for it that he lost his architectural license for doing things when he wasn't using his architectural license because they just didn't like what he was doing. This, this sounds like, Mike, I want to have a beer with this dude. If he doesn't drink, I'm making him have one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be scouting people out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing, like, guys, we do make sure that at least one night when we're at a thing like this that we're available after hours. You missed the last one, Nicole, but we went to this cool pizza place. Oh, fun. And, like, this multi-tiered deck structure going down the bank of the river. Ah. So, like, the place is up top, and then, like, all the outdoor seating is in the back, and it's right on the river, right where you come across that bridge in the Bastrop. Mm -hmm. um, it was really cool, and it's pizza. You're not supposed to eat it when you're on keto, but ah, I tried some. It was pretty damn good, wood-fired type stuff, definite great selection of beer. Uh, one thing they couldn't pull off was a martini. So, uh, 
Yeah, like dirty meant like dump the entire jar of olive brine into the glass and then add a shot of vodka. So just order vodka and bring yeah. your own olive juice. Yep, that's a, <laughs> it's funny you should say that. B-Y-O-O. It's like, sir, you can't bring that flask in here. It's just brine. Yeah. Why do you it's have that? Because you, you don't know how to make a martini. <laughs> that's why. That's why. No, you do not put a half ounce of vermouth in a martini. Especially Do you sweet. wave it over the glass? Yeah, 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 yeah. You rinse the glass and then throw it out. And it's just, yeah. I used to, we got to get into the topics. It's a long show. But, I used <laughs> but to we want to this, talk about martinis. Cool freaking steakhouse in Boston. I don't even remember what it was called, but it was really nice place. And they literally had, when they did a martini, they would take a mister and they would just spray the glass with one mist, and then they would do the martini without the vermouth, and it was just a mist of vermouth on the glass, and it was the perfect, perfect freaking amount. Anyway, let's dig into this. So uh, most of this came off of Noster, except I wanted to throw this in. We, you and I were chatting before we went live. Elon Musk and SpaceX had a test that went up today, right, a, a rocket yeah. test called Starship. It's the first time this rocket went up ever. Launches goes about 15 miles above the Earth. When it got to where it's supposed to separate, it failed. And I think, I'm not sure if it blew itself up or if, I think actually SpaceX might have like initiated like self-destruct sequence zero or something so that this thing the size of the uh, Empire State Building didn't come tumbling down out of the sky. And Musk had said months before this, there's a 50-50 shot it will get off the launch pad. And mm-hmm. I really hope it gets off the launch pad. Because if it doesn't, it's going to mess up the launch pad. And we're going to have to spend months to fix the launch pad, and it's going to slow down our next launch. But all we want is to get it off the launch pad and get some data. And so they got that, and it went further than they needed it to go, and they got all this data, and they did everything they said they wanted. And it was about 90 seconds later that all the mainstream media outlets had this article about how the rocket failed massively and exploded and it was the destruction. And it wasn't SpaceX's rocket. Uh uh uh. Elon Musk's rocket. It's his his personal prized rocket. rocket. One of the headlines, his prized rocket explodes just two minutes after launch. So it was a catastrophic failure. And I shared that on social media and I said, and they wonder why we don't trust them. Yeah. Like, well, they don't like Elon. That's fine. <laughs> you mean like the stupid rich jerks rocket went up in the air and it blew up, but yeah, don't try to make it like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I look at that and I go, here's just reason 9,957.1 that you can't trust anything mainstream media says. And I wanted to give this quote and I got to give credit to two people now because the one being an honest guy gave credit to the second. So yeah. Paul B on Noster, when I posted about that said, the corporate press is factual, but not truthful. And I was like, that is one of the greatest one-liners I've ever heard. He goes, I can't take credit for it. It's from Michael Malice. Yeah. Well-known in the anarchist circle. So well, I just want to – the reason I can put that on there, I wanted your thoughts, Nicole, on that statement. The corporate media is truthful, but not factual. No, they're factual, but not truthful. Factual, but not truthful. I'm sorry. Well, so having worked in corporate marketing, we spend a lot of time figuring out the one thing that will emotionally persuade people to buy, right? Yes. And then we build everything around that. And 
you end up with this fight with the product developer who says what you said isn't isn't true. Yeah. And then we'll argue until we have verified the facts. And then it's true and they still don't like it because it's schmarmy. The reason it's schmarmy is we're spinning it. Yes. To to lead people to a conclusion that's not true in that setting. Now, a good marketer won't do that because eventually you have customers who are PO'd because they didn't get what they wanted. But that was basically the craft that I was being taught. And they do that. I, you Once you learn that, you see the media and you see through it. And it's like, man, ah. Oh. Yeah, no, I see what they did there. Word, if there was only a word for it. Uh, I think there there should be. It probably has too many syllables for us to say, though. It, it, it's a, 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 a <laughs> word that most people wouldn't know, but it's been around for a long time. Fnord. Yeah. Fnord. This disinformation in plain sight is exactly what it is. Because if you here's the thing. Let's say you don't know anything about the rocket launch at all. Yeah. You just know that Elon Musk sends rockets up. That's all you know. There's a SpaceX thing, I don't know, and it's a rocket. And then you see this headline, and then you watch the video. So you fact check yeah. it. You're like, oh, they're telling the truth. They're all going to explode But you have no context, and they're betting on you having no context. And this is one that's like, this is so blatantly obvious. Yeah. That you have to think about how much this is done with things that are not so blatantly obvious. And this happens so fast. It was like they they had this pre-written. They so absolutely like, did. They had, they had four or five pre-written That's ready to go. They had the one where it blew up on the launch pad, the one where it just barely got off and blew up, the one where it blew up like it did. They had one for it got to space, but then it blew up. Mm-hmm. Right? They, the word is bullshit. <laughs> Correct. Uh, Michelle1776 says the word is bullshit. It is. It's exactly what it is. Anyway, let's let's move on from that one because we got a ton came in. This is why you guys got to get on Noster. All this came in from Noster. So I've, I've been on Noster for like two weeks now. Isn't it awesome? Yeah. Do you get sats? I do. I get sats. And yesterday I sold my first coffee on Noster, and yeah. then I was selling too much coffee and had to stop because I was going to lose track of which invoice went to which order. Oh. And so now I'm working on a solution for that. Okay, so Noster devs, we need a way that we can generate invoices on Noster like we already do, but somehow track them back and do some mechanism of inventory control because some of us sell more than one thing in one day. So Right. And Well, and somebody reached out to me and told me to check out something, and I haven't yet because okay. I'm getting ready for a big event. There's, a, that, that's a, that, uh, there's so much help like that. Check this out. Yeah. Yeah, check yeah. Out. Hey, that. this would make your life easier. Okay. I'll do it in my spare time, you know. <laughs> you know? Not everybody has a team of people that can say, hey, go check that out for yeah. me, right? Yeah. Anyway, the first question that came in was on wicking beds, and they want to know about wicking bed construction, substrates, stuff like that. What are your thoughts on wicking beds, Nicole? You have a few of those. I love my wicking beds. We're building a ton more here. It's been a very slow project because of sheep. But oh. <laughs> wicking beds take all the mystery out of watering my plants when I get super busy. And when you pair it with an aquaponics or hydroponic system that's flowing water through mm-hmm. that that um, substrate, it's it's like magic for your plants. That's what I think about wicking beds. So I grow greens in them. I grow tomatoes and peppers in them. I grow herbs in them. Pretty much anything. I've grown. I've accidentally grown sweet potatoes in them. Yeah. And I had to take the whole bed apart to harvest them and get them out of there. But 
my advice on that is have a dedicated sweet potato bed. And they love sweet potatoes love butting up against the edges and then they bulb That's out. What they set. Yeah, like crazy. Yeah. Those purple ones though, they always sit right under where you put the slip. It's yeah. just like you'll you dig up where you originally planted. There's like six of them in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'll tell you my thing with them is if we start with just the soil layer. Yeah. You want that soil layer lightened, so you want something that increases the wickability in it. So organic matter is great, but of course organic matter breaks down across yes. time. So that's fine, but you want something that won't break down across time that, that lightens things. So like perlite or vermiculite mm-hmm. or uh, I've used expanded shale, whatever you can get in bulk that's cheap. And then what I'll do is like the last two inches, I'll go with like a standard container mix that doesn't have a lightening agent in it. Mm-hmm because it doesn't need that up there at the surface. And that prevents, if you're using like perlite or something, you know, we've all had the experience, you water the plant and all the perlite floats to the top. Yeah, that's no cool. <laughs> it's, it's annoying. So when you cap it, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, then I'm with you. I really don't care for static wicking beds where you just have to fill them up every couple of days. Cause when you forget, it's the same as not watering. It's at hundred percent. Like some sort of flow through with a reservoir. And even if you don't do aquaponics or whatever, you could have a hundred gallon Rubbermaid tub somewhere acting as your sump float valve and a pump. Yeah. And you're and that pump for a wicking bed. That pump only needs to go off once or twice a day because once it goes off, brings a level up and overflows, the pump can shut off. Mm-hmm. So what I've done in all my aquaponics systems is I've gone to two pump systems and the wicking bed ones are on a timer. They come on 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the yeah. evening. And then that way you at least have a pump that won't clog up. And if you use the same pump on both sides of your thing, your wicking bed can survive. So if your, your, your main fish pump is really clogged and you don't have a lot of time to screw with it, you just click your timer on, make sure your beds are full and swap the pumps. Yeah. And then set the clogged up nasty pump in the sun. <laughs> and all the goop dries and it cleans out real easy. So that's, that's brilliant. You know? Yeah. 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 So that's my thoughts there. As far as what goes on the bottom, whatever you want. I use a lot of lava rock because we get it cheap locally. Um, people use sand with um, the four inch flexible slotted drain pipe to make sure there's enough cavity in the sand that waters down there in volume, whatever works for you. But my other thing is make sure However you set up your wicking bed, you can control the level of your water. And because what I'll do when I plant seeds, I'll stick a piece of pipe in my outflow and I'll bring the water way up just until those seeds germinate. And that way I don't have to top water. And then as soon as they get roots down, I'll pull that pipe out and let the water go back down to normal. And that because that very, very top, like half inch, inch is not going to be wet unless you do that. So, yeah. That's that's like yeah, anything else before we move on to the next one? Because like I said, we got mulch the heck out of it. Like get mulch. something on top of it once the plants are how you want them because evaporation. If, if you reduce that, it's way better. Yeah, mulch, mulch, then mulch again. Yeah. Um, fish, the keeping, the catching, the cooking, and more. What do you think <laughs> about fishies, Nicole? Well, so fishing is not my strong suit. Catching is fun. Catching is fun. But I'm I'm not a fishing hunter. I I do. <laughs> so I I've I'm not a fishing hunter. <laughs> yeah, there's like catching that. and there's hunting. I'm a catcher. Yeah, yeah. I get bored and wander off. But yeah. the I like cooking. Okay. And 
I'll, I'll talk about what I like to do with salmon because we're about to have my spring workshop. And on Saturday, we cook a whole salmon. We cook two whole salmon, actually. Okay. And what what you do, you leave skin on and we'll open it up and layer it with lemon and garlic. And then I have a special spice blend that's dill, garlic, powder, and um, yeah, like a lemon zest and just do that rub and then just roast it in the oven. I'll roast it closed. We'll have it on the outside skin too. Mm-hmm. And I think we take the head off here before we serve it. I usually serve it with the head on, but some people get skeezed out by the eyes yeah. looking at you. So here we'll serve it there. But then when you know, like when you, when you're done with that, so we'll roast it at like, 350 to 400 degrees depending what the oven's doing for well till it's done so it could be 40 minutes it could be an hour it just depends on how your oven's going and then and then just serve it Um, we have scaled it though at that point there are no scales on the skin so it's just the skin Uh, serve it with the skin and steak slices we'll take the spine out first yeah the key to success on this is don't ever buy atlantic salmon (laughs) (laughs) don't ever buy atlantic salmon man get get if you can get wild caught do that because the the flavor difference in that is enormous it's way more expensive but it's so it's just not worth doing unless it's it's like a good alaskan or or something like that yeah i would agree i mean the real reason is usually if it says atlantic salmon it is farmed Right. It's, it's, yeah. It's not the Atlantic Ocean sucks. It's the farm salmon sucks. Yeah. You they know. eat dog food or something. I don't even eat salmon. Yeah. Food. They do that. They absolutely basically eat dog food with fish meal mixed in it is what mm-hmm. the feed basically is. I would also say so people were asking me about fishing and like the easiest thing, if you, if you know how to fish, you don't need me to tell you. And I can only tell you so much your podcast audio only anyway. Um, but if you're learning, like seek out the panfish bluegills and and all of the various things that we in the south call brim or perch uh bullhead catfish things like that look for small see if you go to the small ponds the fish are in there and if you keep trying you will find them because there's only so many places they could be if you have a half acre you know park pond you can pretty much stand in one place you can cast almost to the entire pond so you will find the fish and you know weed edges there's fish there inside weed edges, probably little fish outside weed edges, big fish, little fish goes outside chomp. Like look for things like in the summer, look for shade. It sounds like mm-hmm. really big, like, you know, weed edges, edges are always the place to be, but like when it's really hot in the summer, especially smaller bottles of water, that water gets really warm. It's lower oxygen levels. The fish want to be cool. So a lot of times just inside the shade, you'll find fish like stuff like that. And, just go try it. Like I had people like, I'm going to take my daughter fishing and she's like six or something. Like I want to make sure she has a good time. Just take, get some worms, go drown them. And I see people saying it's boring. This is what I don't understand about women with fishing. So my wife, give her a book sitting on a boat or sitting on the side of a lake or the side of a pool. Hours go by. Maybe one white claw or two goes down. Everything's wonderful. But if I'm sitting there with a fishing rod, it's boring. I don't understand. It's the same thing. No. Look. <laughs> no, it isn't. If, so I will say my perspective is if I can be on the boat with a book and you're not talking to me while you're fishing, 
Don't talk to me while I'm reading. And a white claw or two can go down. That's fine. <laughs> it's, it's if I gotta. It's if I gotta like stand there, occasionally talking, watching the water. That yeah. I, I, I like. I want to read the book or listen to something. Well, you know me. I, I'm the total silence is blissful. Yes. <laughs> let's let's move from there. All right, building community and events from zero to successful. Yeah. You are the expert in that. Everybody asks me about that. Yeah. And so they see something like the Self Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, which, by the way, we got Joel Salatin coming in October. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, or they see my spring workshop and they're like, I want to do this. And one of two things happens. They ask me to do it for them, which is not possible. Or they ask me to talk about best practices. And I think about everything that goes into an event like that. And well, there's kind of two things. There's, there's the, if you don't start, you will never have something like that. But don't underestimate the amount of time it takes to put something that successful together. Yes. Like John, John's Exit and Build Land Summit. His first one, he had 150 seats. He sold out instantly. And he was like, oh, I guess I better make this bigger. And now it's 500 people. Yeah. But he had to have that first one where he thought a stretch goal was 150 people. And yeah. the reason he sold that out so quickly was the topic was timely. And he had a network of 20,000 people he could send emails to already. Yep. So the, I, out of 20,000 is not a big hit. It's really not. No, right. And so I think all of that developing community and network that you do in advance is very, very important. And then having, having the system in place to say, okay, here's the agenda. This is all of that. That comes and that is a skill set in and of itself. But if you can't bring the people then you have a problem. So if you do not have a network and you want to start an event like self-reliance festival or the exit and build land summit, you need to find partners who have the people. Yeah. And then you usually have to pay those partners to be there because they bring the people. Yep. You have to buy your way into their network since you don't have one. And then if you're smart, you're leveraging that to build your own network. Like I think about self-reliance festival. It's one of those John Willis things that, that happens where when you start working with John Willis, he mentors you whether you want it or not. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I always wanted it, but uh, he was like, Hey, I want to do an event at my place. Can I hire you? And I said, no, if the <laughs> event doesn't pay for itself, it's not worth doing. Yeah. Let's see what happens. And I tell people now, like now that it's, it, you know, like we'll probably have 800 to a thousand people in October. It took that first event of 150 people, which was about how many we had at the first, to set the foundation for showing we could do it to get there. And I'm pretty sure that John Willis asked me that question to see what I'd do and see how far I could take it. That's what I think. And without his personality or him reaching out, to, especially early on getting speakers to say yes, it would have been much harder for me, even though I'm already a podcast personality. Yeah, yeah. I would also say not only should you under not underestimate the amount of work and effort it takes, <laughs> do not overestimate the amount of profit you're going to make because yeah. revenue and profit are not the same. Um, and what you'll find is everything is more expensive than you thought, right? It, it's yeah. 
it, it, it's way more expensive than you thought. And like, well, I'll just give this person 300 bucks and then we'll bring that in. That'll be $500. And yeah. in the, you know, you're, if you run an event with a, um, a revenue total of like 36 grand and you, you like 500 bucks here, five, ah, it starts to add up to real money really fast. Yeah. And you know, you, you can run an event and, and sell $40,000 worth of tickets and be lucky to put six, 7,000 in your pocket. And that would be successful. Not, that yeah, would be that, that actually success. is successful. And it's, you say, well, that's not that bad because it was a three-day event and you made seven grand or six grand. Okay, well, wait a minute. No, because if you start factoring in, then the hours that you have into that event prior to it and after it to get everything back to normal, you just made about the same amount of money you'd make for standing at the front of a store and going, hello, welcome to Walmart. Here's your shopping cart. Yeah. Right. I mean, so you're doing it more for what it can become eventually and for what it does and for what it brings to you beyond the event itself, unless you get really big. Like you and I have talked about trying to do something really big sometime where, you know, you can make your money off of like vendors. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think there is something in that, but I'm not sure that I have the bandwidth for it. I think that a good event for the participants. Uh Oh, she's gone. that, That they learn something if they want to is different than something like we have some sort of prepper self-reliance expo in Knoxville where the ticket price is $10. Okay. And you have to pay extra for every little bit. Like if you want to go to a meal, if you want to see people speak Yeah. and they have a huge showroom floor full of vendors who all had to pay money to be there. And what they're buying access to is a shopping experience that is mm-hmm. topic focused. Yeah. That's not what I'm looking to do. Right. But that makes money. That does. If I wanted money. to do that. That would make money. Um, How do you combine but, that, right? Like, mm-hmm. because I've been to conferences where, like, there's people paying to be there that pay about what we would charge for an event to get the full event experience. But you also have the massive vendors, and yeah. you have your looky loos off the streets that are coming in for free pens and shit. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's what South by Southwest does. They're cute. Yeah. I mean, they're huge, but. They take over the whole city of Austin, but their their showroom floor, people will, you know, do anything they can to get a badge, even if they don't have a badge. And people resell their badges just to get on the showroom floor to get all the free branded crap, which I don't want. But other people really want that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, your pens and T-shirts and. But back to the profit thing, there are different types of capital. So the social capital I've built by doing these events, which do not make me very much money, have been worth it because that makes me like relationship money. But it also sells coffee futures. Yeah. I like to call yeah. them coffee futures. I think it also just builds stronger strength in your community, right? Like yeah. the workshops I do here, we we don't make money. I mean, yeah. we make profit, but we don't make when again when I factor in how many hours of yeah. work. Dorothy and I have into it before we even have you guys show up early that week to help. Yeah, yeah to get it, it set up. I'm making minimum wage, right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't do shit for minimum wage unless it's something I love. So it's more that I see the relationships within my community grow and expand and become more and more and more. And it's become something that's like part of our lives. Yeah. And so when you're going to start an event, I think you have to decide, do you want that? Do you want the maximum profit event that's more of a trade show mm-hmm. or do you want something in the middle? And I think, you know, something in the middle works, but it may not work for, it doesn't work for my farm. It doesn't work for the hauler. No, right? you're not going to put 
2,000 people in the holler. No, I'm no. not. No, they'll I, all I, die. In fact, they'll I, all I dialed back headcount this year. You know, two people will come up the road two different ways, and they'll crash into each other. That'll be it. It'll be over. Yeah. It'll be gone. It's kind of fun to watch, though. It would be kind of fun to watch. I'd have to get there early and sit up on the hill and just watch yeah, it. Yeah, we could totally get you into like a, a blind. So speaking of community, another question was about using Noster and the Grow Noster initiative to build a network of contacts. Uh, go do it. <laughs> yeah, that, so I'm not sure what the question there is. Yeah. When Jack said, hey, let's do this Grow Noster thing, it looked, it looked remarkably like what you were doing on Float for a little while. Yep. And yeah. and here's why, because when you go to any new social network, if you are not interacting with it, growing the community and posting a variety of different types of content, it becomes boring and people leave. Yeah. Or you see nothing and you get bored and you leave. And in an emerging community like the Noster community is. It's a huge opportunity to to have a really awesome community that's way bigger than you deserve <laughs> yeah. because you got in on the ground floor and everybody's Correct. like so eager to connect. Yeah. So yeah. if you haven't got on Noster, erase the word Noster from your vocabulary. If you're on an Android, go download Amethyst and do and use Amethyst. It's the Amethyst network or the Snort network or, yeah. or whatever the app or client is that you're using to Domus interact on, with it. on an Apple phone, right? Domus, right. yeah, exactly. It, it, the cool thing about it is those three apps yeah. access the same information. So it's it's like magic. It's like what we've always wanted where it's like, I just want to log into one thing and have all my socials be the one thing, you know, like between Facebook and Twitter and all that crap. Everybody complains about that. You basically got it here. You can look at it in different ways, but it's yep. the same database under it. So that's cool. People are super eager there. Yesterday, I posted a picture of all the packages I was taking to the to the post office and said something about, I wonder when I'll sell my first coffee on Noster. And it was like all the coffee was selling. That's but the awesome. only reason that worked this week, because I've been doing that once a week for two weeks. Okay. I've only been on for two weeks. Last week when I did it, I only had like 12 followers and all of them already bought my coffee. I got you. So now I have, you know, more. I don't even know how many I have right now. And it's, you know, they, they saw that. They were following the hashtag Grow Noster. So because Jack and other personalities have been driving people to that hashtag, you're just reaching a lot more people and they're motivated to interact or try to see what it can do. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's that. I also think that there is like, there's way more people on Noster already than I think people realize, like just the total headcount. Yeah. It has a pretty big network effect already. It's nothing compared to a Twitter, but you know, you mentioned float and it's been very disappointing to watch them destroy their own company. I hate saying that because I love Kingsley and Aaron, mm -hmm. but, but you're making really dumb decisions with your company and it's resulted in a mass exodus of people. And what Noster has is an advantage of, like you said, all these different clients access the same information. So if Snort falls on their ass, I don't care. I'll use Iris. Right. And, right. and I don't know if you heard my podcast on it, but I said if I was being a marketing consultant for Noster, that my slogan for Noster would be one key pair in your tribe is everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you'll never have to do this ever again. Like if somebody builds a new client that does some cool ass thing with Noster, 
all these connections are still there. And they'll never go away. And somebody can't shut you off or turn you off or make you go away. And one thing I would say to, is a piece of advice for a lot of people that have been joining and, and you know, using GoNoster as a way to connect. Get a wallet and insert your freaking LN URL so people can give you money because I've been yes. trying to get – it's like take the money and I can't give you money. Like here, I have my wallet. Take my money and I can't get – take the money. So please, all it is is your email address for the for the wallet. So it's – you know, Jack Spirico at Get Albi. And you guys should totally send shitloads of stats there right now just to see if it works. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. Just, you know. Thousand sat minimum, please. Yeah, thousand sat minimum. No, but I mean, people really like you grab onto this. And then the other thing is, again, use the Get Noster as a spoke or a hub to find the spokes of the things you're really interested in. Because what you'll see is people are doing exactly what the program was supposed to be, where they're using Grow Noster for anything that isn't Bitcoin. That's what the right. whole deal is because. It's a shitload of Bitcoiners there. Of course it is. That's how it started, right? And so find this other content. And then when you get into Gronostra, you see like somebody talking about permaculture. That's your jam. Well, then follow people that are using that and connect with people using that. And the reason I knew this would work, and it's worked, this has gone way faster and way better. In like a week, a week and yeah, a half. Than float ever was, right? Yeah. You know, uh, it's had so much more effect. And I knew it was because there's a shitload of Bitcoiners there. Yeah. But Bitcoiners are generally in all kinds of other cool shit, and you just need to get them talking about it. And then all of a sudden you have this diverse conversation, and it's ex it has exploded in a week. Uh, it's yes. exceeded my expectations. I always do shit like this. I get something going, and I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> no, so if you guys keep using this while I'm gone, I'll post, like, some hashtag Redwoods and stuff while I'm gone. But, you know. <laughs> You're going to love the Redwoods. Redwoods, and I've, I've been. Dorothy's never been, so she's like – this is like a bucket list uh, thing for her. Big trees. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I guess one other thing, uh, content creators, because a lot of content creators listen to both of us. Something you can do on Grow Noster to get your people there is create some sort of thing that you're doing. Like I, I am incubating. I'm doing a, a duck egg incubation experimentation because I have both Muscovies and Khaki Campbells and they lay their eggs all in the same place and I can't tell the difference. Okay. So what's the gestation or what's the incubation period for a uh, khaki Campbell? 27 days. Yeah. What is it? Days. 28 days. Yeah. You are. So what is it for a, a Muscovy? 35. See the problem? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm experimenting. So I'm incubating. I'm showing people how you incubate, but I'm also yeah. doing an experiment where at 28 days, I let the, the khakis come out and take them out and any eggs that are left that are still viable, I'm going to assume are Muscovies and see yeah. what happens if, they didn't rotate for those few days. Yeah, and then they start rotating again. Yeah, that's that's complicated. I'm only doing that on Noster. Yeah. I, so I, if you want to cool, see right? what's happening, it's all links that are only shared on Noster. Awesome. And unless you have a spy on Noster getting you those links. Yeah. This is why. So I then like you tell your calling. audience that, and then I have stopped calling it Noster as the front. I'll just I'll say snort.social or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can at least when you want to give somebody a link, like whether they're on or not, they can go to Snort and they can see anything that's posted publicly. So that's mm -hmm. I've been using that lately too. So yeah, I would say that, and I'd also say like with the incubation thing, like this is why I like using birds to do incubation. Yeah, they know they're like, oh, turn this one, leave that one. They they know yeah. what to do because that lockdown that's going to be interesting if you can get through that. I guess yep. the other thing you could do is candle them. I will candle. You could candle, candle differently. 
Yeah, we'll an see. egg that is seven days from hatch a candle differently than one that's five days from hatch. So maybe you can hand turn the one. I don't know, man. I because once you get in a lockdown, you don't want to open, you don't want to touch. That's yeah, gonna, and that's going to be really goes cool. up. Yeah, I think yeah, doing stuff like that. Like I've been posting not exclusively, but almost exclusively because I'm using YouTube for the videos, like my mutant chickens. So I have right now yeah. a whole bunch of baby ducks being raised by chickens. Yes. And it's pretty cool because the ones that are like a week and a half old, since it's a bantam chicken, the week and a half old ducklings are almost as big as mom. Mm -hmm. And she sits there and looks at them and they're all in the water. And she's like, I don't understand. What are you doing there? (laughs) We don't do that. And she seems to have come to peace with it at this point, though. Like, okay, I have freaks. That's fine. You know, they hatch and the chicken's like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Why do you have a nose ring? Yeah. What is What is, oh, the next one hatched. Oh, you're the, what the, looking at the rooster going, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay, what do you got going on, man? Anyway, (laughs) this has been, it's been a lot of fun with that, and I agree, like, come up with stuff that's for Noster, and find some of the cool shit Noster people are into, like, before there was ever grown Noster, there is coffee chain. There's people that all they do is they post, like, their coffee for the morning and their setups and all, and it's coffee chain, hashtag coffee chain. And then, like, they've gotten pretty big with the stir. So they have like foodster. Some yeah. sick person started footster, which I just thought was gross. But there's some really cool stuff. Like it started out as a joke, and then it became like who could find the nastiest picture of feet? Like so. <laughs> well, that's how those things happen. Yeah. Let's let's bounce from there. So, what are your thoughts on using, let's say, chicken tractors? But it's not really a chicken tractor. It's technically a duck tractor. Because I want my ducks on pasture. You're going to move it a lot. You're going to move it a lot. That's, I mean, they shit so much more than a chicken. And then yeah. their web feet, they trample, mash. They also have to have water constantly. That they're, they, they don't drink water like a chicken. And you know what happens if you don't move the water, even if you're not tractoring them. If you leave yes. the water in the same place for like three or four days, you end up with duck creep. Because they make yeah. mud and then they pack it. I don't know if that works well or not. I think you can do it with the right ratio of ducks to square feet in a tractor. Yeah. yeah. But what we do with chicken tractor here or turkey tractor, it's the same tractor, is when they get of a certain size, we put up that electronetting for chickens that's huge. And there's a yard coming off the tractor here so that I can keep them where I want them. But I... I don't have to move the tractor as often. And then it becomes more like a mobile coop. So I haven't tried it with that. I mean, I've done it with little ducks, but then when they get to a certain size, we just free range them anyway. So yeah. I don't know. I I think it depends. Like, so first of all, I'm going to say tractoring any animal. If that animal has lived a free lifestyle, I think you're a horrible human being. Unless it's like for hospital, like the things injured and you're doing it for a recovery period. Like I think animals can live in tractors very happy if they don't know. But like I have had to put birds into basically a you know confinement yeah. or something and they are miserable when they have lived free their whole lives. So this is really more for from the time you get babies forward they're in a tractor. I wouldn't even bother doing it for eggs. I don't think there's that much of an advantage. Ducks free range wonderfully as long as you put controls in. The place I would see it working really well and making a lot of sense is the same place I see it for chickens, which is meat birds. Right. 
So you're going to buy a bunch of jumbo peckins or hats, or a bunch of jumbo peckins or something that's uh, a large body, like a Saxony or something. And then you're going to raise that particular group of ducks to maturity, which is, you know, 11 to 16 weeks for processing. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it definitely will increase your survival rate of ducklings because ducklings are stupid. They are stupid and they they get eaten. They get eaten and they get in. Like if you have water for your big ducks and it's not a pond with a slope where it's easy to get out, they manage to get into things they can't get out of. And then they get hypothermic and they freeze to death and they drown. Right. Right. So I think that if you had a controlled situation for ducklings to become meat, it makes sense. I don't know that it is like, I don't think it's the silver bullet pasture improvement model that chickens are. Chickens scratch. So we move the chickens once a day. The chickens have scratched. We seed behind them. We improve the pasture. We go leader follower with other grazers. I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, chickens behind an animal that's leaving behind manure, they're going to scrape it up a week or two into it. And it, yeah, that's not all great. I don't think ducks really do much for the pasture that way. I think you treat them more like cows and we don't have cow tractors. Mm-mm. At least I don't. Oh, somebody has a cow tractor somewhere because there are sheep tractors. There are sheep tractors and they're pretty massive and they're expensive. I think there was one yeah. at John's, wasn't there? Well, John has one, but his sheep got out of it. Yeah. So now his sheep are just out. And so what does he do with it now? Is it like a giant chicken tractor? It's like a giant chicken tractor, and the issue was, I think when the sheep were little, they could fit through the cattle panels that were on the side. Uh, and I don't know. I think once they got out, they didn't get back in yet is the I issue. See. I see. So. All right, let's keep going here. This is probably not your topic du jour, Nicole, but the question was, the way I read the question, because it was long and confusing, but was, does reloading actually save money? I think it depends on what you're buying. If you're buying like something you can buy mill syrup from Wolf Ammo, probably not. If you're reloading high-end hunting uh, rounds for your 3006, definitely. Go go price a box of Federal Premium or something like that. I mean, it, it saves a lot of money. I think I reload mainly for one. It requires my full attention because you can like you know double charge a case and destroy a gun or blow your face up. So you have to actually not look at your phone, not check your email, not talk to your friend, not drink a beer. You have to focus and it's minute work that you think about. And I think that's good as a hobby to pull your brain away, but it's flexibility. You know, I can load things that I can't buy. Like I have a 44 mag load that when you put it through a rifle, like a 44 mag carbine, kind of like that one back there, but it's a 357. And, uh, you might as well be using a suppressor because it's that quiet, but it'll penetrate seven inches of pressure treated lumber. So it'll make a deer dead. Like where do I buy that? Where do I buy that round, Nicole? I, I can't buy that. Some, somebody like you. I, there's yeah. another reason that reloading. So pure money may, may or may not make sense. You can look at that, but we have forgotten where things come from and how yeah. to do things. So reloading is actually on my list of things I would like to learn how to do that and spinning and weaving because I'm just interested in having that skill. So I know that I can do it. Awesome. Awesome. And, and I, you know, like people have showed me how to do it and hopefully I'll have a reloading demo at SRF in October, but 
I think it's just good to learn something like that on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I'll say a couple things on it. One, like, it's not the best way to reload, but especially certain cartridges do really well with it. The Lee Loader, which is a little kit that would fit in a shirt pocket, mm-hmm. they're like 20 bucks. And they have a, a scoop for measuring powder, and you have to use certain, it comes with loading data and all. It's, it, there's people, like, if you read Richard Lee's book, Modern Reloading, he talks about a guy that basically, he, he made pocket money and got permission to hunt on Native American land because he would reload their ammo for them on the back of a tailgate with a, using a two-by-four as a mallet for this mm-hmm. thing. So it's kind of cool, like, the different things you can do with it. The place that you will save money, do you shoot a lot? Because if you can load a box for less money, does it really save you money if you don't shoot a lot? And the answer is it's kind of like gas. The person that will drive an extra 10 miles to get the <laughs> gas for a nickel a gallon less. And technically, did they pay less? Yeah. But how many gallons did you buy? You bought 10 gallons of gas for a nickel. That's 50 cents. Yeah. If you do that for a year, you'll 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 have 10 bucks. No, you'll spend more money driving the yeah. extra 10 miles. Even, actually. even if you didn't have to. Even if it was yeah. I like this gas station because it's a nickel less and they're across the street from each other. Yeah. It's still 50 cents. Yeah. So if you don't shoot a lot, it's not going to save a ton of money. If you are somebody blessed with the ability to shoot out your back door and not just because you can, but I mean like you can actually like if you have like a setup like Hickok 45 hats where you got a range or you got a place you can throw skeet and you shoot daily, it will add up and it will save you money. And the place it will really add up is shotgun. Mm-hmm. If you are a skeet shooter, a trap shooter, anything like that, sporting clays, and you shoot a lot, like you shoot a couple times a week, I would invest, totally invest in like an MEC uh, progressive for the gauge of your choice and the bushings you need to go with it. Even a Lee Lodol, which is the cheap one that you have to manually move the shell each time, it, it you could still load a box of shells every 20 minutes and it's totally worth it. But I don't get to shoot like that anymore. So most of my reloading equipment sits in my footlocker. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever need it, you know how to do it. Yeah, I do know how to do it. I think there is something for, to have the skill set. And I think you understand a lot about, like, when you start reloading rifle rounds, you understand a lot more about, you know, why do I select this particular bullet to go with this particular round? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the downrange energy? What is the, the sectional density? You know, things like that. I think you, you get to where you understand that at a higher level because you're actively constructing the round. And it's it's also a cool thing to do with kids because, like, here's a sad story that doesn't have a sad ending or anything. I just think it's sad that this is how uninformed kids are. Back when we lived in Pennsylvania, my son was in, like, junior high, so, like, eighth grade. He had a friend, same age, and he wanted to go to the range with us. I'm like, ah, you ask your parents, and they were iffy, but they said okay. And I was reloading, getting ready for this range trip, and he was afraid to touch the gunpowder because he thought it would burn. Okay. You know, and I think, like, being able to, like, to is you're bringing young shooters in, being able to take them through the process of the construction of a round opens their minds and also alleviates having somebody that one day will go vote Democrat because guns are bad that thinks gunpowder will burn you by touching it. Right. You know, I mean, so I think only if you are way hotter than I am. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you light it on fire, it'll burn you. That's what I ended up telling them, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so fuel, food and fuel storage. Food and fuel storage. I think that's two different things. <laughs> Do not store your food in your fuel. I, 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 oh, I've been doing this a long time, and I still stand by my recommendation of it. 12 gas cans with numbers on them, 1 through 12. I think that's the easiest. 
automatic rotation. And if you've never heard me talk about that before, this is April. It is the fourth month. So sometime in April, you take your can that says four on it and you dump it in your truck or your car and you put the empty can in your vehicle. And when you go fill the vehicle up, you fill the can up and you stick it back in the row of cans. And then you have 60 gallons of gas in reserve at all time. And none of it's more than a year old. And if budget is a problem and you buy the most frustrating plastic, stupid red gas cans in the world, that's how you get started. But I can tell you that I started that way. And a week ago, I posted every damn plastic gas can on the property that I could find for sale for five bucks each. Yeah. Having overridden most of those horrible nozzles. Because they're they're hard to manage, they're not durable, they crack over time, yep. and the you know sixty to eighty dollar jerry can lasts forever. Totally worth if you're going to be storing fuel in rotation long term. I'm all in on jerry cans, and it would have been hard to convince me of that five years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's just like I'd rather have six jerry cans than twelve plastic five gallon cans. Per Every plastic can we have. Yeah. The seam at the top where the handle is ruptures. Every yeah. single one eventually ruptures. Uh, yeah, and the nozzles, I have my ways of dealing with nozzles. Yeah, there are ways to deal with nozzles. I I just remember one time I I was doing my thing, and I, I'm at the gas station, and there's another lady filling up her can at the gas station. And I'm like, why has she been there so long? And then I tried to fill up mine, and it had this screen in there. So, like, Gas comes out of the nozzle and it goes through the screen into the thing. The idea is you're like filtering the debris out. Yeah. And that screen caused the gas, the gas nozzle to do what? Katink, katink. So you couldn't actually get gas in the can. And I finally got a screwdriver and like pried that thing out of there, filled my can. The lady was still there going katink, 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 katink. Like these innovations in gas cans, all of that goes away if you just get a jerry can. Yeah. And if you can't get jerry cans, I would tell you that something like I have on the screen right now, these metal cans made by Eagle yeah. or various versions of them are way better than the poly, can, the poly cans they sell at Walmart. And yeah. Yeah, that one's 62 bucks. It's not cheap, but... What's a jerry can on there? Uh, I don't even know if they sell those on Amazon anymore because of government... Oh, they did. Um, there's one. Yeah, there's one there. It's just 49 bucks, but I'm betting that's not an actual NATO can. Yeah. So the the problem with these kind often are that the paint on the interior isn't done right and will eventually flake off. But yeah, I'd give this a go for 40 bucks. What yeah, I'm I mean, really wondering is this is the other thing that sucks, Nicole. When you yeah. need a new nozzle, a new donkey dick. They come without a really good seal, and they almost inevitably dribble a little bit around uh, the base of the nozzle is what I've had to deal with. And my workaround for that is I take the gasket that totally falls out. It won't stay in there. Yeah. And I run a bead of, like, number two silicon, and then I press the gasket into that and leave it cure. I use a siphon. Okay, that works. <laughs> That's a simple solution. And, okay, you know why so, I use a siphon? Because the other problem with the jerry can is it has a handle here, but not one here. It's heavy. And yeah. it's heavy, 
and I'm probably not as strong as you, so yeah. I find it to be a pain in the butt to pour from a five-gallon can of any kind. So a cool siphon you can build for yourself, you take the, um, what am I doing here? The bubble, the, the little um, squeeze yeah. thing you buy for an outboard motor, and you take the tube, the, the fuel line for that. And you put a fuel line on both sides of the, the squeeze. I can't remember what they're called now. It's the squeeze charger, right? And then you stick the, the one side, the shorter end, into the can. And you put the other end into the thing you're filling, and you pump the squeeze thingy a few times. And it goes. So Don't reason- walk away. It doesn't go very fast. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> it does not have auto stop. It does not. No, Tactical is yeah, the one who, who turned me on to that to siphon, and then he made me one. Okay. Did you do, do you do you have it? I see. I bought a battery powered one, and it worked awesome. Yeah. For a week, and then it died. And I guess I've never tried that. Electronics probably shouldn't have gasoline running through it. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I got it for Dorothy so she could fill the lawnmower herself, and it worked. Like I said, it yeah. worked great for a week, which meant which means it worked like six times. Yeah. Right. It's not like a week like got used all the time every day. It, like got used like six times, and it just died. And I'm like, I'm done with this. Yeah. Like, so sometimes, I, sometimes the battery power things are not what you need. Yeah, the little pumpy thing works. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, thoughts on okay, Apple has a savings account now, and I, they must be functioning as a bank, Nicole, because it's FDIC up to two fifty, like a bank. That that sounds like a bank or a credit union. Four point one five percent annual percentage yield on your nice. savings. And Good, people want to know what we think about it. I didn't even know they had one, so I don't have an opinion. Well, so any bank offering that, compare it to any other bank and decide. Like, what's the question there? Am I worried about the security of my money at Apple Bank versus my bank? Yeah. I don't know. Um, 4.1% interest is less than inflation. Yeah. Right yeah. now. Because my bank's giving, I was actually trying to pull up my bank, but my internet's being difficult. Um, my bank was giving three something recently, and and I moved everything into that account. I just wanted to point out there are banks that are doing high yield savings that are higher, yeah. not a lot higher, but like Basque Bank is at four six five. CIT Bank is at not City CIT Bank is mm-hmm. at four seven five. For those not watching, upgrade, 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 right? upgrade. <laughs> upgrade give you four point five percent. You got to have a thousand dollar minimum balance. Oh, City's got three point eight five. You have to have at least a dollar in there. Yeah. Um, so there are other banks that are doing interest rates three four percent. I don't really know much about the whole Apple thing. My guess is it's to try to get more people on Apple Pay or something. I don't know. Probably. My guess is that they have another bank that is providing. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's under the Apple brand, but it's Prime Trust or some shit like that underneath it. Plaid yeah. or something, you know. Um, I don't know. It's. It's giving more information to a company that probably already has more information about you than you want them to have. And mm-hmm. you're not getting something you can't get somewhere else. I, I, I don't think I would do it. Well, I know I wouldn't do it because I'm not going to. Well, if I can get a higher, higher interest rate elsewhere, I will go elsewhere anyway, if that's my goal. Yeah. Like there's, to me, there's some way. amount of convenience with staying with the bank I've been with since I was 16 years old, which is why I'm still there. Yeah, we have a bank that we've been with so long. It's got its fourth name. 
Cause yeah. it was a, like a two branch regional that got bought by like a 10 branch regional that got bought by like another small regional that then got bit by bought by a bank that pretty much is Texas only, but it's, it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, so we stayed with them through all those buyouts and they know us and we can talk to people. And if we want to borrow money for something, that's pretty much like, do you still have income? Yeah. Here's your money. Like, so I have no interest in going anywhere. They don't pay dick for a savings account. Most banks are still paying less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So I think that this kind of like interest rate sounds attractive, but I'm back to how much money is it really for that kind of money? Now, if you're someone that keeps your 90 day emergency fund in a savings account, you might as well make 4% on it, right? Yeah. And it doesn't need to be in your primary bank because, you know, but if you take a little bit more of an aggressive approach, I, I just, I think I can do better than 4% on my money right now. My bank does it on your checking account with no minimum and it's three or 4% in that range right now. I'm trying to look it up, but the internet stopped working for me. We get like on our checking, we get like 0.97 or something. It's not even like I, I, my bank right now for capital that I don't need right now is either it's in my mainstream investments or it's in Bitcoin. I, think Bitcoin will do better than 4% this year. I'm just saying. Maybe. I'm just saying. And no one will ever take it away from me. And no one will ever shut down my ability to pay things or lock me out of my account or do anything like that. Because you can't. So I just, <laughs> no, it will do better. I, I, I put out a bet on, when was it Wednesday or Tuesday, that I said that if you put your money into Bitcoin right now, one year from now, you will be at least 20% ahead. And I said, I'll take a $500 bet on that. And then there were crickets. There was nobody taking that bet because you know what happens next year about this time? Yes. The having. The having. <laughs> the having. I like to call it the having. The having. The having. That's one more word. syllable in there. Halvening. It sounds like a horror movie. Halvening. The halvening. You will be halvened. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, you're about to find out. You're not. Yeah. Going to find it. <laughs> Do like an old Batman or James Bond thing where they put a guy on a log and like you got the giant song. Yeah. The happening. Hey, you know, if you can get a guy, if you can make a famous horror movie because a dude wears a pig mask and kills people with chainsaws, there's nothing off the table. There is nothing. Like, and then he he steals, after he cuts you in half, he steals your Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Because you keep your seed phrase in your chest or something. I don't, oh, did you see that? Ledger's marketing a new product designed to wear around your neck with a garter key around your neck. See, that's really smart because no I would one never thought, do that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this $5 wrench and beat this guy until he tells me how to unlock it. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's how you crack Bitcoin. You hit somebody with a wrench until they tell you their password. Yeah, that's it. And if, <laughs> yeah, it's just that's the one vulnerability that we haven't quite figured out yet. But actually, I don't think you've ever solved for that. Uh, I actually do have a solution. It's called a duress pin. And it gives the person access to a little bit of money, but it looks like it's all the money. Mm-hmm. And then they don't know unless it's me. Yeah. And then they know now they know we want the real key spirit. I don't remember. You hit me too many times. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. Cause I'm not going to recommend Apple to put your money into. Would either of us ever buy a Tesla? I don't know. <laughs> um, so, I'm not if I'm going to buy an electric car. Yeah, I'm not going to shun Tesla per se. I, I wouldn't. I'm going to make that decision like I make any other car buying decision, which is I'm going to look at all of the things that are important to me in the car and the price and make the decision. 
I am not currently in the market for a battery operated vehicle based on where I live. Neither am I. So would I buy one? I haven't. Right. So yeah. that's, that's always the, uh, the, 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 the best way to determine whether I would do something or not. have I done it? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the last time I was down in Bastrop, I went to John's house, John Bush's house. Yeah. And he has solar. Yeah. Power walls, Tesla. Yeah. And the person that wants that integrated solution, it was pretty freaking slick. He's got like two power walls or the ones that can go outside the house. He's yeah. got half the roof covered in solar panels. And because they've got the power walls, when they need to charge their Tesla up, when it comes home at the end of the day, it'll dump a ton of energy out of the power wall fast, but the car's like almost instantly charged. Yeah. And so I think that's cool. I, I don't know. I think the Cybertruck is pretty cool looking. I'm the guy that I'm never the dude with the first version of anything. I just don't do that. I let other people buy the first version, the second version, and the third. And I usually buy like the fourth version of new technology. Yeah. And so some of the Tesla cars are well past that, right? The Cybertruck is honestly the one that most interests me as to something I would want to own. Because, you know, I feel like I'm getting ready to go to 1986 or something with Marty McFly or whatever. Um, the bulletproof windows are kind of cool. Though you can just throw a ball bearing right through them. I, <laughs> I like you. Did you see that when they released it? No. So they, they show this video of the Tesla truck getting its windows shot and it's bulletproof. <laughs> and Elon's standing there. And, of course, this is – and I, I'm like, oh, it's not going to work. So he's got a freaking ball bearing. It's almost as big as a baseball. It's probably like yeah. halfway between a baseball and a golf ball in size. And he says, should I throw it? Right. And everybody's like, yeah, go ahead. So he throws it at the window and it goes right in. <laughs> just like sinks it. It didn't go through, but it sunk right in the window. He goes, oh, I guess it doesn't work for that. But yeah, it looks really cool. Um, I think by the time you get done making it what it can be, it's a very expensive vehicle. But yeah. It's actually a lot less expensive than a lot of SUVs and shit out there that run on gas. So I'm not opposed to I'm just like you. I'm not in the market for one. Yeah. And I, I, I look at what we're doing here with yard equipment yeah. and more and more of it here is becoming battery operated for because I hate maintaining small gas fueled things and rebuilding carburetors and all of that. And my weed whacker works all the time. Until, mm-hmm. well, until it gets abused, but like it doesn't not start because of the fuel system. Yeah. So yeah. that's nice for lighter work. I haven't found, you know, I mean, the sheep do a pretty good job mowing the lawn. So I, I like electric chainsaws for the same reason. Like, we're just getting yeah. power on demand, you know, but gas has its place. Like when you're going to, like, if I'm going to be out cutting all day long, I'm pulling out the, the Husqvarna farm boss. Right. But like, um, if I'm going to go out and limb a few trees or whatever, I'm, I'm I pick that little organ saw I have up and it just works. Uh, and I, I think we're going to get there with cars. I think there will be less and less gas cars. I, I, but I, I, I do have this like Spirco Domus prediction that there will be this less and less gas cars. And there will be this middle point where there'll be more and more gas cars again. And then <laughs> like, we're not there yet and we're going there whether we're ready or not. And if you were to tomorrow wave a magic wand and make 10% of the cars electric, then I will tell you it will be about 5 o'clock for your time zone when your grid will go down. Because that, yeah. that will ha- we do not have the electrical generation capacity for 10% of the vehicles to be electric, let alone half. 
So I think they'll run into problems with the tech itself, the energy availability, and then there'll be this like cyclical. And then, you know, the second time will be the big electric car boom. And I think that we'll both have really gray hair by then. Probably. And uh, you know, John, the 2040s is what I'm saying for that. Yeah. John Bush's solution of pairing it with the solar panels and the power walls avoids all of that problem. Yes. And he thought yes. that through when he did that. He's like, I want free power for my free vehicle. Yep. And that's why I'm doing this. And people gave him all sorts of crap. And, and I looked at that and I thought that's where he lives is a lot of sun. Yeah. It makes sense for him. And so he never has to buy gas. We're also really still in our first generation of battery tech. Like it's better, but it's the same tech. Mm-hmm. And battery replacement is more than the car sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of FUD. I have to say this for the FUD people that are always fudding like, it only lasts two years and you need, no, no. The batteries they're building now are good for five to 10 year life cycles. Most people don't keep, you see, you and I are different too. Like you'll keep a car 10 years. Yeah. I'll keep a car. Well, if you don't destroy your car, you'll keep it 10 years. I'll right. I'm pretty good at blowing them up. You know, um, but most people don't keep a car long enough to care about that. You know, they they keep a car three to seven years is average because most people at least do a two to three year lease and it averages toward the three. And then people that buy tend to pay a car off, wait a year or two and like just can't stomach not having a payment and go get another one. Right. So like it's three to seven years average. And then the range is all all the fun on the range is stupid, too. They have, these vehicles are getting 400 plus miles of range. That's like the, a, a good a Tesla has a, a range equal to my Challenger, especially if I'm driving it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the, <laughs> so like that's not a problem. It's just, you know, where are you going to charge it? You know, like here I can charge it at Albertsons. You know, what's interesting. There's four parking places tucked up with these two huge screens and they each have two places you can park and charge. You know who parks there? Nobody. Nobody ever parks there. Next time I go, I'm parking there because it's close. And the, that, and the big giant it's big giant screen that announces what it is, it's set up so that at the time I would be there, it puts shade on the spot. So I would sit perfect. there so my car gets shade because no one's going to get upset because I've never seen a vehicle plugged into any of them. I watched the Sam's Club charge stations sit unused in their parking lot for years. Yeah. And I was at Sam's Club Tuesday to get ready for my spring workshop and there were actual cars parked there charging for the first time in probably three years of them being there. Yeah. So I think there's a map that says here are charging stations and people driving through because I 40 is right there. Yeah. They go to Sam's Club then. I know that when we were looking for like a Vibro Airbnb out in California for this trip we're about to take, like half of them are really proud of the fact that they have a electric vehicle charger with the house. So I think it also depends on where you live. Like we don't, neither one of us live where there's a lot of yuppies. Just we don't or hipsters or whatever the hell they call them. Now we just don't have those people here. Like you will see more pickup trucks drive down my road than you will ever see cars. And in spite of the lightning or whatever it is that Ford has, they're not just not there yet. So I don't know. I, I'm not opposed. I, I guess that's our short answer, both of us. We're not opposed to it, but we're not doing it. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. All right. Moving on. Potting soil, Nicole. Do you make your potting soil? Do you buy your potting soil? 
Why do you do what you do? I like successful seedlings. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like you buy your potting soil. I actually used potting soil this year for the first time that was made here from mostly worm casting stuff. Up until this year, I've 100% bought my potting soil because the one year I made my potting soil was the year of no germination. And Uh it was all my fault, I'm sure. (laughs) And so I thought, if I'm going to have successful tomatoes, I'm going to buy potting soil. Gotcha. But I took a risk this year. Tactical made it. I did not make it. And it was worm castings, composted material from the compost piles. And I think nothing dug up from the yard. It was just all... You know when you're done with the so it's probably the some of the purchased potting soil that in yeah. the failed plants all in a thing. Yeah. And it works great. I uh I buy it cuz I only have so much time. And this is my kind of go-to brand, uh Fox Farm. They have the stuff that is the farm forest or whatever and it's really good. A lot of the microgreens growers use it, but it's more expensive and it's not that much better than Happy Frog. So uh, I highly endorse this uh, Happy Frog product, and then I'll enhance that. This year, I've been enhancing it with biochar, mm-hmm. so I ran about uh, 10% biochar, and I just kind of measured how many big giant scoops a bag was, and then I figured out what 10% of scoops of biochar were mixed in with it, and I usually add some other fertility, like uh, beneficial microorganisms, stuff like that. I remember uh, I took a course, Mike something, I can't think of his name now. He sells a whole course on plant propagation. And his formula for potting soil was a third compost, a third finely ground bark, and uh, a third sharp sand. And so I think all of it works. It just needs to have some lightning to the tilth. Like you can't throw dirt in a small pot and then try to grow because – it's not like growing it in the ground. You're in this contained environment. But what I will tell you, the biochar thing, I turned off my automated irrigation this year, reconfigured my thing, so I'm manually watering. I have so much more leeway because of the biochar. When I've manually watered starts under lights with the heat from the lights and all, generally I've had to water twice a day, morning and evening. And if you forget, when you go in the morning, your plants are sad. If you forget the whole day, they're like dead, right? They're dead, yeah. I can go three days. I can go three days and they're fine. And you kind of pick them up and go, that's pretty, that needs some water. But that's just at a 10% uh, biochar ratio. And that's the only thing I'm doing different. So I recommend the frog. I recommend you buy. And uh, I recommend adding biochar. And if you want an alternative to Jack's method of watering over the top, if you have them in a tray and operate like a like a water table, yep. you can water the tray and it wakes up, which I'm sure works great with the biochar. We don't we're not doing biochar here right now. The and then you don't have the sad plant problem. The only reason I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. is because I'm using the trays that are flood and drain trays from my aquatic system, my, my hydroponic system and the amount of water because of the channels, because it's designed to run out yeah. it's necessary just to get to the level of the pots without having it run in cycles. It's a lot of water. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a significant amount of water that would then sit there and breed mosquitoes and get skanky and get me in trouble. So that's, I am all for bottom watering when you when and if you can. 
uh, I wanted to really kind of experiment since I was changing something this year and see what happened and pay attention and actually water my stuff. All right. Next thing, inventory management of food and supplies, i.e. The, free, the deep freezer inventories. I know we both do that. Yes, I do it differently than most people. Okay. Tell us it's your no, I think it's So the system you use for inventory management is – needs to in some way be tailored to your household and everybody needs to participate or it won't work or nobody needs to participate and only one person participates and nobody else messes with it or it won't work. Okay. So that's, that's the first thing, but so like, or one person and nobody yeah. touch, right? So, right. So I, I have a method here and it's what I teach in the power pantry method, which works for all of it where I keep most of my storage in long-term storage. So a deep freezer is long-term storage. The fridge is, and freezer in my kitchen is short-term storage. I care not what's in there, really. If I take something out of long-term storage and move it in, use it or move it into the kitchen, there's a dry erase board and I write the thing, except for not with my meat because I'm not replenishing my meat. I yeah. get whole animals. So, it's just, and so that's just for me. But if I was trying to keep 10 pounds of, ground beef on hand then i'd be like okay i used a pound and it's time you know once i get five pounds because i buy it five pounds at a time i'll buy more and put it in long-term storage i find that physical process rarely results in me having something so old that i forgot about in the bottom right hand corner of the chest freezer but on the meat side because i do get whole animals and I'm not doing what I would do for other grocery items. I actually have boxes of things in there. So if I get a cow, I'll have a whole box of all the ground or a whole box of all the steaks. And if there are two cows and one is older than the other cow, we have to use up the old cow before the new cow. So I just write on the top of the box what's in there. I used to have a clipboard on the freezer, but what I found is with my, just because we eat the whole animal, it didn't matter. Yeah. And I know you do butcher box, so you're getting some of the same cuts on a regular basis. Yeah. And you so, really need to manage it more. So what do you do? So what I do, we just took cardboard boxes and wrote like steaks, flank steaks, ground. And then we put those on the shelves in the, in the stand-up freezer. Yeah. And then when stuff comes in, you just take the box out dump it on top of the other freezer, put the new stuff in the bottom and throw it back on the top. And then that yeah. way the newest stuff is always on the bottom. We do a semi-annual, so twice a year inventory. We do one about this time, and then we do one right after the workshop because we've cleaned out the one little chest. Mm -hmm. And we do that mainly because of things that we forget about. And then we'll like, okay, like th all this shit is going into, because we have, you've been in my place, we have a bunch of freezers yeah. and fridges. Like we'll take all of the stuff we forgot about and we'll put it in one of like, we have an old one from the kitchen that we moved out to the garage that has a standard, like normal size freezer. We'll shove it all in there and then we'll just eat that. Yeah. Until it's gone. But we just keep that inventory going. And that's just, that's as organized as we've been able to stay. We have in the past after a freezer, in, freezer inventory said, let's go ahead and, and knock out a list of the meals we're going to make for like the next three weeks. And then that we hated that. Because we're just not the we're just not that kind of people. So I do a use I do a similar thing, and and somebody just said what? So you have free freezers, chest freezers, and you rotate them. The answer is yes. I do have three deep freezers. One is a chest freezer. Two are uprights. 
Uprights yes. are easier to manage what's in there because Correct. you can see everything. Chest freezers, if you leave it open, the food stays frozen. So there's yes. benefits. So my my newest meat is in the chest freezer and moves into these other two freezers. And I, like you, we do go through them twice a year. I, I'm going to be going through them right after my spring workshop in a week. And I went through one of them before to make sure that because we feed the grass fed animals that we have here to the people at our workshop. So I was like, sure. I need all of this ground. And I end up with a use it up pile, just like you. Yep. And then the way I get that used up, it's really miserable to just only you eat the use it up stuff because sometimes you just want the brand new steak. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You shouldn't be miserable in your food, but I will make myself make at least one or two use it up meals until the use it up pile is gone. And then I plan something. I try to plan something fun with it in advance, but yeah, I wouldn't make like these 10 meals to use it up. Oh, yeah. But what I really want is, you know, taco night or whatever. Yeah. And you, you have a couple meals a week where you're cooking for a larger number of people or yeah. something too. Like it's inevitably it's two people here. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's why we didn't like the pre-scheduling. Cause you wake up and you're like, what do I want today? You want pork chops today? No, I don't want pork chops. I don't want a freaking ribeye. And, and <laughs> like, I don't rotate between the freezers. I actually have like, we have one freezer dedicated to beef. Yeah. And we have one freezer that's dedicated to pork and chicken. Yeah. That's and a good way to do it. There's some mix, there's some fish and stuff that's in either, where it will, where will it fit? But primarily we have the one is all beef and we eat beef probably two to one over the other two combined. And so we keep that beef under a lot more management, I think, um, than we do the other stuff. Like, cause it'll be like, I want wings. Okay. Go get three packs of wings out and I'll make a bunch at once. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, and so we have lifetime wings from butcher box. So we have a package of those every, every month come whether we order them or not. So, um, uh, we don't really eat that much chicken. Like we used to, we, we've yeah. gone pretty heavy on the beef thing now and, and, and pork. But really, beef. Beef is where it's at. Yeah, there. so that's, yeah, I have beef and lamb. It's the same thing that's happened here. We we all mostly went keto or ketovore here, and the chickens just sit in the fridge. In yeah. the freezer, not the fridge. Yeah, I just killed four roosters, four bantam roosters, and um, I got to figure out something to do with them because they'll, they'll just sit forever if I don't. Like, I need to make lunch with Braylon or something and, and mm-hmm. get the Vin out of the lake quarters or something. Cause it's delicious. I just, you know, when, when you have that conversation, what are we going to eat tonight? Steak? You did never, you never say no. Yeah. Like steak. Well, it's, it's, we had steak last night. What would we have last night? We had a ribeye. Take some strips out. You know, take, go get a flank steak. Like there's lots of steak. There's lots of variety in the steak world. All right. Let's keep going. Cause we're at hour 18 and we're not even close to the end yet. Now we're closer than I thought. Um, side hustles, sales and marketing. Is that a, is that a question? Yeah. Let's talk about those things, please. Okay. Side hustles. Side hustle sales. I'm starting another side hustle right now, Jack. I actually, just so you know, I actually took like four people's stuff and just made one bullet point out of it. Yeah, that's fine. What's your new side hustle? I got rid of my pigs. talk about side hustles? My pigs are gone. And the pigs, while providing delicious meat, also provided us with a very important function. And that function was composting all the scraps very quickly. They do it very quickly and with joy. And I realized I was going to have to do some sort of other scrap composting system. And there are lots of systems I could use, but I realized that running it through a poultry factory would be a really good one. 
Okay. That does not require me to do a lot of work. And so we have built the holler roost. That's the t-shirt I'm wearing. It says I spent the night in the holler roost and all I got was this crummy t-shirt. How do I get you up there only? If I just click click on me. So all I got was this crummy t-shirt and there's a sign on the holler roost. It's a beautiful, uh, sort of victory garden style approach where I have one pasture on one side, one on the other. We'll go back and forth. I will put wood chips in there and all of that's going to compost. Well, guess what is going to happen once I have a bunch of chickens eating a bunch of compost. You can have a bunch of eggs. I'm going to have a bunch of eggs. Do I eat chicken eggs? I don't think you do. Very rarely. Yeah. It, I, I don't, don't like, like them. Duck eggs are so good. Yeah. That's, that's all it comes down to. Like, I'll use chicken eggs if I'm out of duck eggs. If Dorothy yeah. sells all the duck eggs to customers, like, damn it, okay. I'll have chicken eggs. And they're delicious. Yeah. They're delicious. They're just they're not duck eggs. So I'm putting a sign out on the street, and we're going to start selling eggs again. What I'm not going to do okay. is offer eggs for sale that I drop off anywhere. Oh, no. No, no, Ever. No, no. Because last time I sold eggs as a side hustle, I was driving single dozen eggs to cities. Yeah. And I don't like being a delivery person. Do you know what? When you deliver, people will order a dozen eggs. When they have to come get them, they buy 12. They buy 12 dozen in one go because they had to come do it. You know, we we, we have our, our, our way of getting rid of duck's eggs when we have extra to sell and our customers don't come. Dorothy goes and gets her nails done. And then she yeah. lures all the little girls out into the parking lot and opens up the trunk and goes, ah. I have and then they go, how much? How much? $10. We give you eight. No, $10. No, eight. No, 10. But okay. Trunk. Now. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> they want to haggle. It's like, no, that's how much they are. You know, we buy all. Okay. $10 a dozen. No, 10. We buy let, all of them. No, no. And she sells them all like that. Like any yeah. surplus we have. And that's the only time we will sell an egg that doesn't, somebody doesn't come here. Because she's going there anyway. And most of our customers buy at least six dozen at a shot if we have them. Because yeah. lots of we don't. Um, now, Dorothy's actually thinking of a side hustle making dog food. Yeah. So we switched our dogs to a, basically it's 99% chicken. Mm-hmm. And we buy the giant bags of the cheapest, nastiest chicken you can get from Walmart. Ten-pound bags, like $5 and change. Mm-hmm. That's less than you can buy, like, dog food for unless you buy the shittiest of the shittiest dog food, like old Roy mm-hmm. or something like that. And it's still not much difference. We were going to do it raw, but with that quality of chicken, I don't trust it, even with a dog. So we throw them in the pressure cooker. She bones it. We end up with a big thing of broth, mm-hmm. a big thing of meat, and a big thing of bones. We throw the bones back in, like four or five batches worth of bones at once. We throw them in there for like 90 minutes. Yeah. And they get to where the dogs can eat them with no danger. And then Mm -hmm. that all gets mixed back together. And we've been feeding our dogs that. And they have, Charlie lost 10 pounds. He looks like five years younger. I mean, except for the gray in his face now. He looks amazing. So we're like, she's like, I don't want a big business. But if I could have five or six people I did this for, it would be worth doing. So I think, you know, there's all kinds of stuff waiting to happen out there. I was going to cut it with carrots. Yeah. Carrots cost more than the chicken. Well, and do do- how many carrots do dogs eat in the wild? None. Zero None. carrots. Maybe one if they find a carrot. I was thinking we would do it just because it would be easy to just throw a bag of carrots in and just the people's mindset, you know, that you'd be selling it to. But I'm like, it costs 70, 70 cents a pound for a carrot and 50 cents a pound for the chicken. 
yeah. chicken. Dogs like chicken. And we, what we're doing too, though, is like we throw a certain amount of chicken liver or beef liver in small amounts so that they get some diversity mm-hmm. in some of the nutrient and what have you. And they still get a little bit killable now and then. But she's thinking about doing a uh, little business selling dogs food. I want to get my kids, my grandkids, doing something with plant propagation. Like I'm like, and Tegan's doing mint right now. She's all excited. She made 12 mint plants. She's going to sell them to her her uh, her aunt, I guess you'd call her cousin aunt. <laughs> Matthew's cousin's, her dad's cousin's wife. I don't know what that is. Second Cousin-in-law. Cousin, cousin-in-law, whatever. Cousin, second cousin. We call those aunts in my family, too. Yeah. Uh, if you're older. Sell her a, a, a <laughs> six-pack of them for some, yeah. And she's excited to make some money. But I'm like, I could have the two of you making more money than your parents in a year. Yeah. If you would do the work. Because I'm not doing it for them. You know, I yeah. want to I want to teach them, like, profit and loss. I want to teach them, you know, what an income statement is. Slowly, because they're kids, but... I think that is a huge opportunity that people are missing is teaching your kids that mindset young and side hustles are a great way to do that. They are. And the thing about side hustles is the only it's helpful if you know what your goal is. Like, are you looking for a side hustle that becomes your full time job or are you looking for a side hustle? That's just a thing that brings a little extra money in. Yeah. That kind of matters. It kind of doesn't matter because if you're looking for the former and you do the second one and it's something you love and it goes well, it turns into the full-time thing. If you don't start anything, you will never have a full-time business that started as a side hustle. So look at what you have extra and start selling it. And for me, that's going to be eggs. And if they don't sell as eggs, guess what? I have a freeze dryer. I can freeze dry those and I can sell bags of freeze dried eggs at something like the Self-Reliance Festival where people are looking for food storage items, for example. And if that doesn't work, I can feed them to my dogs. And if that doesn't work, I'll figure something else out. Like, it's there will be something <laughs> done with this, right? Yeah. But you ha- I think, like, approaching it with some flexibility is really helpful because I would never have holler roast coffee. Yeah. Had I not started selling tomatoes at the market and I liked, I had extra roasted coffee because I roasted for me. And so I started selling bags of those as a side hustle for not enough money. Yeah. But you learned that it was something you could do and you wanted to do because one of the things you have to be careful with going into business for yourself with is don't do something that you're good at, but you hate. Yeah. Right. And then don't take something you love and make it into something you hate. Those are the two things to really be careful with balance with. Um, is, it, the eggs thing is what got me on the dog food. I forgot, I forgot about that. So there's a place, a little store, and this is why I won't even bother trying to raise chickens for eggs here. They have so many people that sell their eggs there that they sell eggs for like a dollar fifty a dozen. And they're all pastured to a degree, right? So we were actually thinking, you know, we could go up there and start adding that to the dog food if she starts selling it. Yeah. Because you can take like 10 dozen eggs and throw them in one big sous vide container, click, right? And then you've got hard boiled eggs. It's a dog. You crush the eggs up. If you feed boiled eggs to your dogs, guys, just crush them up and they'll eat the shells and all. And it's good for them. So, like, that was another thing we were thinking about. Um, Green Country says, I like the fresh produce truck idea. I think there's a lot of people talk about doing that, like having this farm and then they're going to sell direct consumer and all, and they're going to have this food truck or something like that to go out and do deliveries. If you want to do that, go find food and build the market before you try to grow a blade of grass. 
Uh-huh. Because the business model in that is not grow food. The business model in that is deliver food. There are people making food right now. And I know people that do that here that do really well. When we downsized the duck eggs, one of the accounts that we had to turn away was that's that was it. This guy was doing like a co-op delivery service. And they we had to deal with them that we would just whatever we didn't sell by a certain date for the month, we would just sell to them. And they took it all and they never failed to sell every single bit of it. They grew nothing. They lived in a little suburban house. But they saw this opportunity and they went, instead of trying to build a farm, let's just build a business that does the thing that we wanted the farm to provide stuff for. And because of that, they have so much more diversity in what they're able to offer because you're not going to build a business doing that, selling duck eggs and pork chops once a year. You need a variety of product so that the person starts to see you as a source of their food. So, like, be creative with these side hustles. Don't don't typecast yourself. Yeah, and don't try to be perfect. No. Because that's like the model where you grow the food and you deliver the food and you grow all the food and it's all these different kinds of food will drive you crazy, first of all. And then secondly, you're trying to be perfect there. It has to all come from me. John Dowie does a lot of stuff that he grows. He, He sells it to restaurants and to other people. And he also meets people and totally does the value add with like maple mm-hmm. syrup and whatnot, makes a yep. ton of money on that without having to do maple syrup, which is a lot of work, a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I was up there and visited him and David was with me, we were talking to him and driving around. It's little, he calls it his rape van. It looks like something somebody would park in a parking lot with free candy on the side. It's his delivery van. And we, 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 we came up with this entire idea for a reality TV show based on what he does microgreen mafia yeah and we started naming like all of the suppliers different names so the, the maple syrup guy was going to be named sticky fingers like, <laughs> and we came up with this whole like and we were like you know if we actually pitched this to like like some cable network they would probably consider picking it up like i think if he just did that on youtube yeah and just made it happen he would yeah. sell so much product and then, he'd have to, then he has to deliver the product you know it started he has that whole boston mass accent and so we're driving around and he's talking about some restaurant that he had as an account. And he's like, them guys came up from down there and try to take my account from me. We're like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, <laughs> I had to get them guys out of here. They got no business in my place. I'm like, oh, this is I got this idea. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah, like be creative, have fun. Don't ruin what you love and don't don't monetize what you hate. Like there's way too much that you can do. You know, somebody said that the dog food was a great idea. Nobody does that. Well, think of how many things like that. Yeah. That there are out there, you know, and people will spend more money on their dogs than they will themselves. And if you're selling dog food for two fifty a pound or something like that, and somebody complains about it, tell them to go look at what they're spending right now when they buy the damn dog treats or something. Look at a bag of pig ears is. It's like the most ridiculous thing in the world. Dogs love them and all, but it's like 20 bucks for 12 pig ears. Like, so if you, I, I don't, I, I see like, that's a huge market. That's a multi-billion dollar market. How much do you need as a side hustle out of it to be able to make some extra money? Yeah, it's, I don't know. So marketing related to that, the deal is this, find one thing that you are marketing that sets you apart, learn how to tell a story about that and start telling your story, story even when nobody's listening. Yes. Tell it on everything you do. Tell it on YouTube if you're on YouTube. Tell it on your marketing flyers if you're putting those out. Tell it on your social media. 
And if you're just, if there's one thing that's the most important thing, your job is easier than if you try to market three things, mm-hmm. even though I'm all about my three things. Yeah. The one thing. Yeah. Yeah. At least in the beginning, like have a yeah. thing that's like a flagship and that builds a market and then you can yeah. expand and sell more into the market rather than try to expand the market that you have. And if you're going to do eggs, that's a loss leader, guys. It's, you know, you got to figure out what, what can I sell to them next? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, even when we were we were running like 150 birds, we were doing about 30,000 annually in sales of eggs, which sounds like a lot. But by the time you factor expenses and you're making about we were making about 15,000 a year. And there's a lot of work that went into that 15,000. And that was pushing the capacity of what we could even do here ethically. Like it was like not one more bird. The land will tip over like the island. <laughs> right? um, if we wanted to have really built that into something, though, if we would have started doing microgreens and selling clamshells of microgreens to our customers, we could have really built that a, a lot further up. It's just that's the thing. Do what you love. I like to grow my own food. I don't want to be a farmer. That's mm-hmm. not what I want to do. It will ruin the fact that I love what I do for myself. I love teaching and podcasting. So find the thing that you love and pursue it aggressively. And yeah, on the marketing, like t- tell the story. And if it's a product, then is there a niche that you're not exploiting that you could be like, you know, again, the duck egg thing, Asians love duck eggs. It's, it's their chicken egg and they can't get them here in reasonable quantities. It's not something that's easily available. So where do Asians work in general? I know this sounds like you're, you know, being racist or some shit if somebody's gonna be triggered, but it's the truth. You go to a nail salon, it's usually full of Asian people. You know what else is full of Asian people? Churches that are for Asian people. So yep. like, as we were wondering, like, do we keep doing this? And do we keep, like, we realized like, we have this whole contingent of Vietnamese Catholic churches. And it's like a one person from that church. Oh, go, we'll buy them all. Like, wow, okay, I didn't know that. When I bought the Muscovies that I have now from a guy, he was saying, I think it was Taiwanese that would buy the ducks. And they were paying like 40 bucks for a big Drake Muscovy to kill it and eat it, but they did all the work themselves. Perfect. And it was one they had, like where he lived, he was in the middle of a fairly large community. And I think it was Thai. If it was, it was some other Asian community. And there was something that they ate for big family meals that they couldn't get. And the ducks subbed in for it. Mm-hmm. And because the Muscovies are huge, the, the drakes are huge, that it would be enough for the center of a family meal. And he said he sold all his drakes that he was willing to give up for between 35 and 40 bucks. And he would just kind of eyeball like it's a really big one. It's 40 mm-hmm. and never had a problem. Now, could he sell 10,000 birds like that? No. But on a side hustle, don't miss those like find the community, sub community group demographic that wants your thing. And then talk to them. And like you said, my definition of marketing is tell your story. So tell a story. I have a duck. That's a pronouncement. I raise my ducks this way and they never eat any GMOs. And here's where they live. That's a story. And the thing about stories is stories get repeated. And just statements of fact generally don't. Like he has a duck. Doesn't usually get repeated. But where'd you get this? Oh, there's this guy I buy my stuff from and. Yeah, that, that's what you want. Let me tell you about this guy. And that's that's how we have passed on knowledge from for millennia. Yeah, is we tell a story about something. Yeah. And then you repeat the story and we are programmed to remember the story. OK, moving Using that. 
<laughs> Moving on. Urban outdoor container gardening. That's something they wanted us to talk about. Well, uh, it's container so gardening. Looking, Where the, it is is real, irrelevant. That's just what they said. Yeah, that's that's so container gardening is is great if you can keep them watered using the wicking technology. I say technology in air quotes. Yeah, will help you keep them watered. And if the only way you have to grow something is in containers, get some containers and again, just start. I don't know what to say about it other than it's entirely possible. You can make it look beautiful. I have a sister in Vienna with a balcony up in a, an apartment building. That's where she lives. And every year she puts out five or 10 containers with things growing in them. Some of those things are ornamental flowers that she can cut and put on her table but she's grown cabbages and tomatoes and all sorts of stuff on that balcony. And it's, you know, every time you grow a tomato, it's a tomato you don't have to buy and it tastes better because you just pulled it like straight off the vine. It's still warm from the sun. No tomatoes do not need to be cold to eat. It tastes so much better. The mouthfeel is better. And I think when we put energy into growing our food, no matter how small, even if it's only a little basil plant, there is a, a spiritual impact that should not be underestimated where we are interacting with nature. And I think it's awesome. But I also think wicking technology, like once I learned, understood how wicking beds worked, yeah. you can do that with a pot. Yeah. You can yeah. automate the watering or not, and that makes your whole life easier because the pro the challenge with container gardening, if they're small containers, is the sun hits that, it heats up, and then yeah, yeah. Dry. I, my advice was get as big a container as possible. The larger the container, the more you're going to have the ecosystem of soil within it. Yes. So, like my smallest containers I've ever seriously tried to garden in were some flower pots that probably held somewhere near fifteen to twenty gallons. As kind of a minimum. And those had that dry out, get too hot problem. So thinking about facading them in and don't be afraid to go big. Even if you have land, it doesn't have to be urban. So John Bush just posted this picture the other day. I was there when he was uh, putting these together. He put in a huge number of wicking beds built out of IBCs cut in half and flipped over. And so, I mean, that's all wicking. And each one of those is effectively a four by four bed. What are there? Twelve of them there. Mm-hmm. For those that are watching the video. So, you know, go big with your containers. But one thing you'll learn is that dirt's expensive when you have to buy it. Yes. Right. It really is. Like when you start filling up IBCs, it's a lot of soil. So it also is think about where you're going to get your soil from. And I have a, a suggestion for that. So wherever you are, there is probably somebody if you're in a major market. So urban would be restaurants. There's probably somebody that grows microgreens like John Dowie does. They go through shitloads of soil and they tend not to reuse it. They're selling a product that they sell by the ounce, right? It's a, when you start listening to them price their microgreens, it sounds like they're pricing dope, right? So he gives away tons of soil that is top end potting soil. And he's like, your garden, your first year is going to be a microgreen garden, all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> That's fine. You know, that is fine. So like you might just want to check, like is like find somebody who's growing microgreens. What do you do with your, what do you do with your spent soil? Because it's very high value stuff, but because of the industry that they're in, the business are in the risk of, you know, if this microgreen gives this person salmonella is so high, 
they just toss it. They just toss it. Like he used as much of it as he could in his backyard. And like as small as his backyard is, he would like bury his house if he kept doing it long enough. So he gives it to people and he'll give them a truckload of soil for free. So I had not thought of that resource and that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would look, you know, anywhere you can for stuff like that. I don't know, maybe nurseries that throw away a certain amount of soil every year or something like definitely because it's already grown stuff. So, you know, you're not getting herbicide laden shit or it wouldn't have worked. Right? Correct. <laughs> right. So, you know that. And the, the, the microgreens guys are usually using organic product. They're always using organic products. So you, you're out of the herbicide realm anyway. So even if you had to buy it, you know, they would sell it to you for less than you would pay for it new. And you don't need it to be new. Build so I can tell you, one thing I've done is the local arborist dropped off wood chips. And I've done the bottom of a bed like that with wood chips, like the wicking, then wood chips, and then about eight inches of soil on top yep. of that. Yep. It breaks down. And what happens is by the next year, it's way sunk down. And you have to add more soil. But, but, that's a, but it was free for that. Yep. Yeah. I do that a lot, too, even with my, my really tall raised beds. So I'll do like two and a half foot high raised beds so that the ducks don't fuck everything up. Um, I will put in 12 inches of wood chips, like a hoogle, basically. Mm-hmm. And it will, like you said, the next season it'll be lower. And you, you, But then, you, you know, you're usually adding compost and new mulch and everything every year anyway. Yeah. And it's a, definitely a money saver. And I believe that it is one of the best ways that you can infuse a good fungal population into your soil. Mm-hmm. Because like the wood chips I have out in my field, every time you dig into that, you just smell mushroom, right? Damn things ain't grown no mushrooms for me, but you smell mushrooms. So you know <laughs> that they're laden with beneficial fungi. All right. Yeah, the, 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 the comments are saying mushroom farms too. For Yeah, cow, I didn't think of that. No, they're, they're dead That's on because brilliant. They have they've used up their substrate to the point where it's not beneficial to them anymore, and it's a waste product. But it's an extremely valuable waste product. Most of those guys are probably selling it, but they're probably selling it like wholesale. You know, so like go buy a truckload for half of what you would normally pay for it. Uh, moving on, situational awareness and egress routes, etc. Situational awareness. As in worldwide or in my immediate area? I think this was more along the lines of your immediate area. You know, one of the games I play with the kids. Yeah. Is if we're driving somewhere that we do a lot. Tell me three things when we get home that you noticed that you didn't notice before. Mm-hmm. Like this guy left his lawnmower out or this dude's door was open or that tree had a broken branch or something like that. Just to get them looking, you know. Something I started doing about 2020 when I got a little bit more freaked out about what was going on culturally is I I got myself road atlases. And when I go places, not every time, but sometimes, if I'm in a hurry, I just go. I will use the map to do a different route. Mm. And then I see if, see, like, do I get lost or do I get there? And that has retrained me to to read maps, which I grew up doing, but because I'm Gen X, I'm old. Yeah. But, you know, GPS is really easy to just program the address in and, and you're done. And it's made me more aware of different ways to get in and out of places. Here, I had pretty much figured out what goes where, which is kind of hard to figure out here. You've been here, so you yeah. know. Yeah. The roads, like half the time, there's not a road sign and it's 
one lane ride and you don't know if it's a driveway or a road around here. But I think if you have never navigated with a map, start there. Like, can I get from my house to Jack Spearco's for his fall workshop with a map? Yes. Without. Have I done it? Without one. Without yeah. GPS, without, without GPS, no, GPS, GPS, yeah. you can turn on if you get lost. I did that like two times ago. I was, that's what I did. I got to your house without GPS. Yeah. Because I wanted to make sure I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that we, we tend to for like our demographic tends to forget. Yeah. Like, I've owned a Mapsco, not just, not just an Atlas. Cause an Atlas is like one city to another. Like when you're having to find stuff in Dallas, you know, yeah. back when I was in more of like a service oriented, you have to go to somebody's building. You don't know where it is. And you didn't go, Siri, I need directions to 121 Elm Street or whatever. You actually had to find it. And so, you know, you had a maps go and you could. And I would I remember actually like on some big days and knowing I had to move fast, like writing in note cards directions. Like yeah. remapping the whole day so you could make a route and get get back and make your time between sales calls or something like that. Um, and yeah, people need to learn how to, 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 to read maps and some of you need to learn how to draw maps. Have you ever had anybody draw you a map and North is not up? This is oh, yeah. to me. This is ma- go pro- this way. Well, what freaking way is North? And they're like, what's North? Okay. I don't want a map from you. Yeah. I don't well, I mean, want that's the problem you- with GPS is I need it to always stay North and it's trying to show me my perspective. Yeah. I don't need my perspective. I need North. North is up. Yeah. If you're 50 year old or you North is up. North is up. <laughs> and nothing will ever change that. You know? Yeah. I said that years ago and somebody pointed out that's not true in a cave map. Well, when I'm in a cave with my car, then you can put more <laughs> somewhere other than up. All right. Don't give me your like, you know, like they remind you of the person like at a sci-fi convention that asked the actor to explain a discrepancy in an episode from 20 years ago. Like, yes. Like that person. Like, just stop it. Stop, stop it. it. North is up on a map. That's the rules. I didn't make them, but I followed them. That's because that way you don't fall off the earth. If north wasn't up, we'd fall off and it'd be flat. But I would say also, you know where I live and it's very rural. I know how yeah. to get in and out of here without any roads. Yeah. I know because I like to hike. So I've been all up in there. Yeah. If you wanted to get me, I could lose you in those hills and you probably wouldn't get back out. Yeah. Very easily. So the advice is get all up in there. Yeah, get all up in there, man. Get all up in there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I think, but like, I think on this, when you are traveling, what you were saying about the maps and all, like, I don't go to a place and then just turn my phone on and drive from the airport to wherever I'm going. I do that too, but I yes. always like go to Google Maps, Google that route, familiarize myself with that area, and like, what would I do if there was a traffic jam? What would I do if there was a fire? Like, go through that mental exercise and have an awareness of what's around you. So you're not just sitting there looking at this, you know, phone telling you what you're supposed to do because sometimes it's wrong. (laughs) It takes you places you'd rather not drive sometimes. Yeah, that too. Like it doesn't have, like it has a feature that lets you know if there's a wreck. It doesn't have a feature that says warning. This is a place where there's gang warfare and wearing the wrong color shirt will get you killed. It doesn't Correct. have that, you know, like I remember one time I got lost. This is pre GPS days. I was in New Orleans and I'm driving through not a good place. And literally everybody on one side of the street was wearing a certain color and everybody else was wearing different colors. 
Yeah. Right? It was like a divide. It was like this was the gang. It was like the road was literally you could tell by looking this was the gang territory line. And they're like eyeballing each other and shit. And I'm like, yeah, this is not the place for a redneck with a busted ass pickup truck to be. Like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I need to not be here. So we need some sort of traffic app that includes things like this is a bad place for you to go. Yeah. Or maybe it's a bad place right now, like riots and shit, because that happens. Yeah, I would love that because the other like so one time I accidentally ended up in the middle of a not so peaceful protest in Ferguson, Missouri. Okay. And Fergus, Ferguson, whatever. And like they came into the hotel I was staying at. Yeah. And I knew that there was some scuttlebutt going around and it was totally scheduled in advance. This is when I started paying more attention. This was yeah. the incident when um, anonymous like people in the masks and, and and just came walking through. And luckily, I did not get hurt. But I think about what could have gone down in that situation and I didn't know it was coming and I didn't know where I'd go. So I usually have an idea. Tactical's way better at this than I am, though. Yeah. Like anytime he goes anywhere, he's a, he's he's a millennial, by the way. Yeah. He's not X. He knows the map and he knows the directions and he has the steps. He will never run GPS. He will have looked at GPS. Yeah. And he has ideas of ways around things. So if I get in real bad trouble and I'm not situationally where I actually will hit him up and say, look at this map, because I think there's a wreck over there and I don't want to go there or whatever. See, I think so, we're onto something with the protest thing, though. You know, like ways, like a little thing comes up and it's just cop. Right? Yeah. And it says, is it still there? And you, you're, and then other people know, or there's an accident or whatever. We need one just like a flame. And when you click to see what it was, it says fiery, but mostly peaceful protest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Recommend you avoid this route. Like, yeah. Okay. Let's keep, let's keep, yeah. Look, look. <laughs> New ways feature digital voice gang violence hazard reported ahead. <laughs> great minds think alike, Renegade. Uh, great minds think alike. Let's move yeah. on. We're getting toward the end of this. Uh, becoming ungovernable and the uh, government's manual on sabotage. I sent you the link, Nicole. I don't know if you knew that. Our government has an official federal government published manual on bluntly how to fuck shit up. And sabotage things. Yes. And so I almost didn't put the songs. I'm like, this could go really wrong. Horribly south. Horribly south. I skimmed it. I only had time to skim it. Because there's things in it like how to burn down a building and set off fire alarms and stuff like that. I'm on a list now, Jack. You're on all the lists. As soon as you talk to me, you're on a list. It's (laughs) it's done. Um, But what I found interesting is this person said, especially the last part. Well, the last part is like how to fuck shit up as an administrator. Right. So just to frame this, the, the manual is written for like our CIA, our special forces and stuff like that. If they're going like behind enemy lines and they're recruiting allies in against an adversary to teach them how to break shit and how to win them over and keep them on your side as they break shit with an understanding that not everybody's going to be running around halt, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails. Right. And some of this was like, okay. Cause I was like, I could totally write a longer, better manual. And then I was reading this. I'm like, I never thought of like Karen and Reese, Karen and human resources it being useful and intentionally fucking shit up. Yeah. She is, things like screwing up inventory, demanding like in a procedural meeting that everything be met before you let it go forward. 
And I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe some of this could be used inside like the parliamentary processes of things going on, like the show I did yesterday where they're trying to put all these building codes in through the land board. And it was kind of what the girl was doing, though. I don't think she was doing it for sabotage that was objecting. And she was like, this is your bylaws. This is what your bylaws say. You're, you're violating your own bylaws right now. And they got so pissed off. They tried to get the county commissioner to remove her from the board, which mm-hmm. didn't work. Mm-hmm. But like, if you really understand parliamentary process, not thing I'm going to do, but you can hold all kinds of shit up. You can make all kinds of things people want to pass, not pass at least for a long time. I never so really this, thought about that. This is where libertarians can shine. Okay. Because libertarians are not all of them, but yeah. I've worked in the free market think tank world, right? So we're talking the ec- economists. Their minds are very analytical. That's what's brought them in. They evaluated the facts and came to the conclusion that it's all crap and we need less government. And they're very good at seeing all of the ways something can be adjusted to be to to adhere to the letter of the law, but still get you what you want. And so if you wanted to put that mind on on slowing stuff down because you didn't do it right. Because <laughs> that's basically what this is, right? Slow it down because you didn't do it right. They would be indispensable in a large scale effort like that. Have you ever watched like a libertarian organization with bylaws have to try to take it over? No, no, I can't do that thing, but I can imagine I can. I have. Yeah. You've been part of it. And (laughs) they, they take your by. That's exactly what they do. They take your bylaws and they're like, how can we take over? Yeah. And there's, you know, ways you can pressure from outside, but there's also just demanding the procedure be followed all the time. And people want to kill that person. And that person often wins because they outlast the people who give left. So what we're saying is for all these politically active libertarians, go use your annoyance powers for good. Stop fighting for control of a party that doesn't get anything done with each other. And go prevent the other parties from getting it. Because that's, oh, that's the genius superpower of libertarians. And I mean it political is. libertarians, not you and I libertarians. Yes, right? like, I agree. The politically active libertarian, their superpower is making nothing happen. Yeah. That's their superpower. Make nothing doable. Nothing's possible. Nothing ever gets done. But they do it with each other. So what you're saying is send them in. Do that to everybody else. Do that to everybody Stop else. Stop fighting with Everything each other. Up. Like you could do a lot at a county commission meeting or a, because I've been at those meetings, neighborhood association meetings. Yeah. Like one of the things this girl did is one of the bylaws on this board was the chairman of the committee could not serve more than two consecutive terms and then had to go a one year term without being the chairman before they could be placed as chairman again. Well, this dude was on his third. So she's like, Anything you do from this point forward is null and void. Yes. You're not supposed to be here. And he eventually did step down. And they stuck another shark's tooth in. It's the same Agenda 3020 crap. But it's an example of this is clearly a violation of your own rules. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we, we're gonna, we voted to decide we can do it anyway. No, you can't do that. 
Because you have you rules. Do that because your own rules say you're not allowed to vote to do that. And the guy was basically, they basically were doing illegal shit. And they, they said on video, okay, sure, it probably is. We're going to do it anyway. And you can challenge it in court later. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, yeah, use your annoyance powers for good. Yes. Because no, I, I We need the most detail-oriented political libertarians to step up. They are annoying. And I do not mean this as a ridicule. It no, is a I don't either. Power. Everybody has character traits. Mm-hmm. And annoying can be a very valuable one when it's properly directed at the right target. Quit fighting mm-hmm. with each other and just go. Don't even worry about winning. Just fuck it up. Just slow them down. <laughs> slow them down. The slower they are, the longer people have to realize that they don't want it. And they don't want it. Green country. I don't know exactly who he's talking to when he says witchcraft. This is kind of like witchcraft, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're going to cast this, uh, the bylaws spell, right? Because yeah, yeah. the people that are politically active libertarians, they are the kind of people, they read everything. They know everything and then they want to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. This needs, yeah, we need some sort of movement to get these, because I'm not right for it. I, I was, I talked to the guy I talked to yesterday. said so the reason I can't do this is that dude that was running that meeting I would have been like, so I'm going to grab you by your nose with two fingers up your nostrils. I'm going to drag you across that table and I'm going to take you outside and beat the fuck out of you right now. And he would have been like, you can't do that. I would have been like, that is a difference of opinion. (laughs) (laughs) That is a difference of opinion right there. What you really mean is I'm not permitted to do that. Not that I can't. Yeah, you're about to see the can't mm. is a big ass word. Permitted versus used can. in the wrong way. Like I don't have the temperance for this, but if you do, go fuck shit up. Help us be ungovernable. All right, last one: rainwater collection methods and techniques. Oh, get a gutter and a tank. Yeah. Uh, so I collect rainwater through through some micro swales right now. And that's yeah. been the easiest way for me for the purpose that those are there for, which is to water plants. I don't have to do anything. Yeah. It rains. It goes there. It hangs out there. It comes back out. And if it doesn't rain, I put their design so I can put the hose on one end, turn it on, turn a timer on and it fills the swale and the same thing happens. I say that because I would have never thought of that as a rainwater collection system 10 years ago. Yeah. It, I would have gone straight to rain barrels. I think the the best way to store water is in the ground. The second best way is in a deep pond. Mm-hmm. The third best way is in a container of some kind. Like that is your order. Like in the ground is perfect. It doesn't evaporate when it's in the ground, or at least it, right. it does so very slow, slowly. Slower. Swales and earthworks that infiltrate like is your, your number one and then c- connecting hard catchment to those with a little bit of math so that you don't do something you'll regret later. Cause I've seen that happen. Um, gee, what happens when we put 50,000 gallons of water in there? Well, I'm looking at this. When you get a quarter inch of rain, you're going to friggin' find out. Um, so like being careful with that. But like, if you look what John did with like the pond, he put in the back yeah. you look at that pond and go, that's not that big. But if you see the picture before it filled up, it's very deep. <laughs> with, an, with like a giant excavator laying on its side. Yeah, on the bottom of the hole, right? Like, <laughs> okay, this has got a couple billion gallons of water in it. And he, if I understand right, he takes the water off the roof of the warehouse, the shop, and it goes through a giant pipe and ends up in there. So it stays full. Th- that would be massive scale. Mid scale, I think you're looking at 
some leveled and plumbed together IBCs is a minimum. The whole barrel thing. So if you have a hundred square foot of roof, an inch of rain will give you fifty gallons of water. But most people's roofs are a lot bigger than that. Yeah. So if you have two thousand square foot of roof, you're gonna get a thousand gallons per no, it's a thousand gallons per half inch is what it is. A thousand gallons per half inch of water. It's a lot of water. So if you have a barrel, fifty gallon barrel, you you can't really It's a lot of barrels. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have fifty gallons of water you collected, okay. How long is that going to do anything meaningful? So I think you've got to get enough volume to make it worth doing. And IBCs are great and all, but you can buy like a 1,500-gallon polytank for about 800 bucks. And that's now you've got something. I've got two of those on my back shop. It's uh, 800 square foot of roof, and they stay full most of the time. So, yeah, and... I've seen people do like racks of 55 gallon drums mm-hmm. on the whole side of their house and it yeah. works pretty well in Oregon. Guess what it does in Oregon? Rains. It rains all the time. We do have the dry spell in the summer and it does go for months, but it rains and even that ran out. So storage is part of it. I think it's very important to think about your overflow based on where I live, which is yeah. four inches of rain at once. Yeah. We have to think about how does it overflow without eroding the hill. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely an issue for you. I've also seen people do something I think that is underutilized, which is use something like an IBC. as like a mini catch water tower to mm-hmm. move water somewhere else. So what I've seen people do, for instance, then is they take this and they build like a platform for it and they put up a 300-gallon IBC and they move the roof water into it. Pipe comes out of that, goes underground, maybe goes across a road or something where it would be inconvenient. And then as long as what it's filling up is lower than it, it will flow that water by gravity to that next location. Uh, Hatch, that does our lights and sound for the mm-hmm. workshops, he set that up at his place, if I remember right, uh, just, just to basically move it across a road without having like a pipe go down through. Um, but, th- you know, then if you're using IBCs, like, if you get five of them, you got 1,500 gallons, right? Yeah. That's a significant amount of water, but make sure you're storing enough. The other way I've seen this done, less rain catch and more just water reserve. I've seen people string together a bunch of IBCs. Yeah. Right? Plumb a line from a hose bib into it and one out. And every time they water, they're pushing water through using their their well or their city water or whatever. But what that does is whatever amount you have, you always have that in reserve if the water gets cut off. So it's basically you're using it more as a battery than using it as rain catch. To me, though, once you have that, you might as well. Gutter's cheap, you know. <laughs> Gutter, Gutter is supply. cheap. And, well, and so IBCs are white and light yeah. IBCs and algae gets grown. So either paint them black or, I mean, if you're going to have water sitting there, think about that because you will grow yeah. them up. Yeah, that's the other thing I love about the polytanks. They're black. Mm-hmm. Well, no, okay. Some of the polytanks are black. That's and true. And there's a reason you should totally buy a black one. Right? Buy a black one. <laughs> buy a black one. Buy a black or one. Or green. Green's okay. Green's okay. <laughs> I, I'll just say I've never had an algae issue with a black tank. Yeah. Uh, the other nice thing about these tanks, the ones that are made for this, they have a baffle on the top where there's a thing you can open up and look inside and see how much water you have and all. And that baffle allows water to flow out. 
So when you've overflowed the capacity of the tank, it naturally kind of sheets off the top of the tank. And then you can direct that water somewhere like, oh, to a swale that feeds a pond or something if you mm-hmm. happen to be able to do that. So that's kind of what I got on that without doing a whole show on it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything else to add. No. You got anything else to add, period? I think you should go turn off your phone, have a cocktail with your wife on the back porch, <laughs> and enjoy your vacation. That's what I have to add. <laughs> yeah, my vacation doesn't technically start till Wednesday, but it it technically it doesn't it doesn't the, the airplane part doesn't start till Wednesday morning. Yeah. But the fuck off and not do any work part start, starts as soon as we're done with this. Excellent. Because uh, the expert council show is done. The rewinds are done. I'm going to I don't think we're going to go on the back porch with a drink just yet. Kids are here. but uh, Oh, yeah. There's always the winery fun. down the road. There is a winery down the road. And this makes some pretty good wine, as you know. Mm-hmm. I do know. Uh, for people that maybe are checking uh, the Survival Podcast out for one of their first times, you should tell them who you are, though, because we didn't do that and where they can learn more about you and your awesome podcast and everything. Well, uh, why is this weird chick on Jack Spierko's podcast? I don't know. So I'm Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast. We talk about a lot of the same things Jack does, also other things. But I talk about our story developing a homestead and a community here in Lancaster, Tennessee. I talk about small business startup things. I talk about building the life you choose on your terms because it's up to you. So if you're interested in stuff like that, check out livingfreeintennessee.com. And I'm also a coffee roaster. So this is Holler Roast Coffee, hollerroast.com. I roast everything to order. And The reason I even started roasting coffee as a business was that I love coffee and I very carefully tasted beans once a year because I realized from year to year to year, the same farm tastes differently. And so I would have to try a lot of beans to find the ones I was willing to produce. And I did that for myself and my friends. And the next thing I knew was at the farmer's market. And then I finally did this awesome demo at Jack Spierko's spring workshop when he did those. And I told people profit wise, I got to make a $20,000 jump before I go to the next commercial level. So I'm never going to be a full-time coffee roaster. And the minute those words left my mouth in front of 80 (laughs) people at Jack Spierko's, I was like, well, crap, I just lied to myself because I just realized I love roasting coffee. I love seeing the looks on people's faces when they taste something that they've never had before. And I went home and went commercial. So Hollerroast.com started right in Jack's garage, as have many businesses. Check that out as well. Cool. Well, real quick before we go, guys, remember you can always support this show and the work we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And we were talking about wicking beds. If you're like, well, how do you make the water flow through there 15 minutes once a day? You do it with one of these mechanical timers that I've been recommending since, oh, forever. Um, these are made by a company called Sentry. I like them because they're, they're, they're so easy to use. I can use it without breaking out a manual. Every little button, every little tab you push down is on for 15 minutes. And if you want it to be set to an actual time, you turn it till the arrow points at the time that it is. 2.30 is right between the 2 and the 3 for p.m. if it's p.m. And that's it. You plug it in and it works. Simplest form of automation known to man is on and off. And you can do so much with these little timers. They come out to about 8 bucks a piece. I highly recommend them, but remember, you can always help support the show and the work that we do, no matter what you buy, if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com. So please do that. And with that, we are done. Nicole, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Folks, hope you enjoyed it. 
This was the last live stream for the next two weeks. I will catch you guys on the other side, but great rewinds will start on Monday. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Revolution is you.